Well, I caught you. Here you are. And no one can deny it. You are here. Therefore, according to thousands upon thousands of ministers and millions of nominal Christians, you are guilty of something which probably is going to keep you out of the kingdom of God. This is the way I put it on my television programs often. I will say, if God catches you trying to obey his laws, are you going to go to hell? Think about it. I have heard so many sermons, it's unbelievable, ranting and railing against God's law. On a rare occasion, when I get a chance to go out to West Texas, I invariably will be driving out toward Pampa on a Sunday morning, and as I'm spending some hours in the pickup truck, I will listen to the radio. Well, you know what's on on Sunday morning, especially in West Texas small towns. And when you go from one to the other, you're up in the 12, 13, 1400s, and about 30 miles, you'll run out of that station, and then you turn to another one. And I will hear some of these local pastors, and they'll be Church of Christ and Pentecostal or Baptist, Methodist, whatever. And time and time again, I've heard many, many times in my lifetime sermons ranting and railing against God's law. It's all been done away. You've heard it all your life. It was all nailed to the cross. Now, where did they get that statement that Jesus nailed the law to his cross? Millions of people believe it. It's almost like they see Christ with a stepladder and a mouthful of ten-penny nails and a big scroll or a chart called the Ten Commandments, and he goes up the stepladder to the top of the cross, and there he takes that thing and he nails it up there. And then later they nail him up there. Well, they don't really portray it that way, but that's the way it tends to come across. I think it's a valid question, because when you hear them ranting and railing against the Ten Commandments the way they do, you've got to ask the question, if you are found obeying God, is God going to get you? Is one of his primary goals sitting up there in his heavenly armchair, looking down here in the world and trying to find someone who is trying to keep that old law. And I'll tell you, many of the sermons that I've heard pretty much equate it with sin. I think an awful lot of more tolerance is given toward people who are drunkards or people who are, you know, maybe drug addicts or people that have had horrible marital problems or who are not necessarily good parents or have all kinds of deficiencies in their lives, but who nevertheless are not some of these law keepers when they find someone who is allegedly a lawkeeper, I mean, they get hot about it. And I'm not kidding. I don't know if you've heard that or not, but I've heard a lot of it. And I've read a lot of it. And I've had a lot of letters, very angry ones, and phone calls that have come into me over the years that have come directly to me, taking me to task about all of this. And really telling me, you ought to know better than that. The Ten Commandments were done away long ago. Now, if they were, and I'm going to show you the scripture where they get that in a few minutes, why are these following scriptures in the Bible? I imagine a lot of people wish they weren't, and I'm sure they never read them or refer to them, but there they are. So what am I going to do? Matthew 5, 17. Jesus Christ, right in his famous Sermon on the Mount, said, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, fulfill means do or perform. It doesn't mean do away. He's not saying, think not, I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to destroy. 
That would be utterly ludicrous, but that's the way they read it. And don't think they don't have excuses or explanations or very deft little minuets that they can tippy-toe around many of these scriptures to try to convince people who might stumble across one once in a while and come up in all sincerity to the pastor and say, well, pastor, look what I discovered in my Bible. How do you explain this? They will have an explanation. They go to some of their theological seminaries and they learn how to explain away some of these verses. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now that is so abstract in some ways, since it doesn't really say directly the Ten Commandments that many a Protestant would be able to accept that one without a lot of contention. Matthew 19, 16 and 19. Behold, one came and said unto him, that is Christ, Good Master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now here is where Jesus Christ missed a wonderful opportunity. If only he could have said, and all the churches would have been so deliriously happy if he'd have said, My good young man, don't you know there is nothing you must do? Get rid of that concept, get rid of that word, that word do. That smacks of works, of deeds, of things you've got to do. Just erase that out of your vocabulary. There's nothing you must do. I have done it all for you. And just believe on me, accept me, love me, and that's it. Bang! Presto! You are now a Christian, you're born again, and you're going to go to heaven. That's the way to tell it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Some of them add the word, you should be baptized. Many of them don't, because when you are christened, or you are sprinkled, or someone pours a little partial, partial cup full of water over you, as some of the churches have it, that takes care of that. The Baptist church has that exactly correct. They know exactly what baptism is, what it stands for, what it pictures, and they wade through the sixth chapter of Romans with penitent believers, and they explain that it's the death burial of the old self. It's a picture of the death burial in Christ, of Christ, and the picture of the death burial and resurrection of the old self to walk in newness of life. So he said, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Verse 17, he said unto him, why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. And he meant in the fleshly state. He didn't mean that he wasn't a good person or that he was a, a, a good person comparatively the way we would look at it, absolutely perfect and flawless, but he is comparing himself here to God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said unto him, which? Because he was a commandment keeper. And he thought maybe Jesus was emphasizing a particular one. Christ said, thou shalt do no murder. Now, which commandments are there? Where is there any table or any series of laws, or any document, any ordinance of any kind in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation called, quote, commandments, in which you will find that statement, thou shalt do no murder. And isn't it interesting that he didn't say thou shalt not kill? Because in the Hebrew the word is rotsach, R-A-W-T-S-A-C-H, and it does not mean thou shalt not kill at all. Because otherwise there would be a blatant contradiction in God saying, Thou shalt not kill, and turning around and commanding the Israelites to utterly exterminate the Hivites, Jebusites, Perizzites, Amalekites, and some of these heathen nations who had pagan gods and 
followed such abominable practices as infant sacrifice. So it is, thou shalt do no murder. And lo and behold, in the New Testament Greek, Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. And you can only find that in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You can only find that in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. You can only find that in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The first four commandments tell us how to love God, and the last six tell us how to love our neighbor. Now, because Christ did not recite the entire ten, which ones did he leave out? For example, does it say here, thou shalt not covet? No. So is he giving blanket permission to covet? Well, the way some of them argue, since he didn't reiterate the fourth commandment, then he excluded the Sabbath. But he didn't reiterate the first one or the second one. That lets Catholics off the hook from their St. Christopher. He didn't say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, any idol, or any likeness of anything in the heaven above, or the earth beneath, or the waters under the earth. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the children upon the third and fourth generation, upon the fathers, rather, under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy under the thousandth generation of them that love me, and keep my commandment. He didn't reiterate the first or the second, did he? But he reiterated enough of them to make it very clear to this young man that he's talking about the Ten Commandments. And he summarizes the sixth, I should say the, the last six, by saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There are dozens of proofs about keeping God's law. In the college classes that I taught, we would go back and we would say, all right, students, we're only going to use Genesis 1 to Genesis 19. I'm, I'm sorry, Exodus 19. Genesis 1 to Exodus 19. We're not even going to allow you to study or to look into Exodus 20, which is the first place in the Bible where the Ten Commandments appear. And we're going to do research and try to find where every single one of the Ten Commandments were known that it was a sin to disobey them, punishable by death, and prove that the Ten Commandments were in full force and effect prior to Moses, prior to the giving of the Decalogue. And we did that successfully year after year. Students would come up to the blackboard and they'd put up the various scriptures. I would give them tests on it. We would show how Abraham kept his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. In Genesis 13, 13, the men of Sodom were sinners exceedingly before God. And how Abimelech says, how is it that you have done this by telling me that Sarah was your sister when she was your wife, and you might have caused me to commit this great sin? And we would look at many other examples that absolutely demonstrate that the Ten Commandments were not non-existent and just suddenly came into existence at Sinai when God wrote the first tables in his, with his own finger in stone, but that they had been in existence and had been shown to the old patriarchs prior to the flood that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Psalm 119, 172 says, All thy commandments are righteousness. And we were able to do that. Now, we're able to prove, of course, anybody could do this, that they were in effect from the time of the Decalogue until the close of the New Testament. should say the Old Testament, excuse me, till the close of the Old Testament. No problem there. The patriarchs, the prophets, all observed God's Ten Commandments. We would go to Isaiah 56, and we'd show how God promises the heathen and even eunuchs 
saying to the eunuch, let not the eunuch say I'm a dry tree, because heathen and those who are not allowed into the tabernacles of Israel, if they observe God's Sabbath day, he said, would be given a name better than that of sons and of daughters, and would walk the high places of the earth and be blessed with the heritage of Jacob. In other words, the very promises that God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of entry into the kingdom of God. Then we would prove that Jesus Christ kept his Father's commandments perfectly and that he set us an example that we should follow in his steps. Then we would prove, and this is really ridiculously easy, that the Apostle Paul not only observed meticulously God's Ten Commandments, but that he taught the Gentiles to do so, decades after the ascension of Christ. If you will go, for example, to Romans 6, 13, here in Romans, the sixth chapter, I should say, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. I'm going to turn to this in my Bible to make sure I didn't miscopy that so that you get the correct scripture. And uh, again, this is a scripture that I quote continually because it is one that has to do with baptism and the whole meaning of repentance from sin. Verse 1 of Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we sin, sin, sin so that God can forgive, forgive, forgive? Now there's so many analogies there that are obvious. You have accumulated, let's say, about seven or eight traffic violations. You go down to court and the judge decides to be magnanimous on this particular day and so he forgives you. You have done what? You have broken the law. He forgives you. So your past transgressions are now forgiven. They just take these traffic tickets and they stamp, forget it, void, no, nothing to, nothing to pay, no, no fine. What are you then free to go out and do? Run every stop sign, try to hit the lady with the baby bunky, the buggy before she gets to the curb, as I've said before. Just break every law, every traffic law ever known to man. Is that right? Well, that's the way the Protestants tell you. That when you're given grace, and what is grace? It is the unmerited forgiveness or pardon, undeserved pardon that you haven't earned, of past sins. Sins that are past. It is not blanket permission to keep on sinning. And it is not a condition, grace meaning a condition in which you dwell, so that from now on, no matter what you do, God doesn't call it sin. He calls it by some other name. No, if you are forgiven by a judge for breaking the law, and you're free to go, you're not free to go to break the law. You're free to go out and observe and obey the law from then on. Neither yield you, your members, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You know, I've often used that for people that have the same affliction that I had from about age 15 to age 23, that of smoking. And it gets such a hold on you, and I know that I can really empathize with people who make that first step and get involved in drugs, Oftentimes, marijuana is just the first step toward heroin and cocaine, and then they become completely addicted, and they have destroyed their lives. I've known youngsters who have just 
blown their minds with some of this PCP stuff, angels dust, different chemical derivatives that some of these people make, these methamphetamine labs that people right down here where that constable's office is, just about a mile and a half from where we are. There's an old kind of a used car lot right directly across the street. There's a little kind of a shack there. And some of those deputies began to wonder about all the cars coming in and out of there, but no cars were ever sold. And lo and behold, they discovered that these guys were running a methamphetamine lab right down here within a mile and a half or two of this property and selling drugs all over East Texas. So it says that sin shall not have dominion over you. Who controls you? Whom do you obey? I have asked this of smokers. And they get on their knees and they put this little white cigarette out there and they say, Oh, little cigarette, thou art my God. You are my boss, my master, my ruler, and my Lord. You tell me what to do. You tell me when to do it. You tell me how many and how often. And I portray it that way, so I try to nettle some of these people into getting their resolve because you see advertised on television continually all of these various programs. I have no idea whether one works better than the other. You see them with a patch going, no, 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 the patch doesn't work. Well, maybe it does for some people and didn't for others, but there are any number of methods, and they must, some of them work, of people who actually pay money for certain things which can help them break the smoking habit. The point is a lot of people don't want to break the smoking habit. Well, I had to go down for over a period of six weeks, many, many times, sometimes two and three times a week, to visit my dear friend Sam as he slowly died in absolute agony of emphysema with great big tubes coming out of his chest. It was the most painful thing you've ever seen. And so I feel very sorry for people like that because I was in the absolute grips of that controlling, domineering, substance that had a grip on my mind and it ruled me from my fingertips, not from my brain. It wasn't my brain that said, I need a cigarette. It was my capillaries, my fingertips and my toes, my circulatory system that was addicted to something called nicotine. And it just sets up a kind of an anxiety and your mind then begins to kick in and say, I think that my body is telling me I got to fill my lungs with this acrid choking smoke, burning paper filled with chemicals and all of that, and these TARs and carcinogens, and I've got to have that. There's a little fellow that I will golf with every now and then, whose little old lungs cannot stand a breath of fresh air. He smokes 20 cigarettes and 18 holes of golf. He lights up on every time we, we tee off. He'll finish a cigarette by the time he walks off that green, he started on another one. And he just smokes constantly. And I will always tell him when he comes in afterward, I'll say, which way is the wind blowing, David? Because I'm going to sit, you know, the other, other way from him. He knows that I, a lot of the guys can't stand smoke, and he and several others do. And I feel sorry for him because I know where he's headed. I know what the ultimate outcome of that way of life is going to be. Sin is not to control your life. But there are sins of the appetite, and then there are so, also sins of, like, psychological holds on people. People that have virtually uncontrollable tempers, people that are so self-centered and selfish that they continually uh, make absolute fools of themselves in social situations. You are not under the law, but under grace. Oh, you're not under the law. Now, how can you not be under the law? What does that mean? You're under grace. 
Well, he goes on to ask the question, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. You see, if I'm under the law, I've still got outstanding warrants against me. I've still got sin hanging over my head. It is crushing. It is a heavy weight. It's bearing down upon me. I'm under the law. That means under the consequences, under the penalty thereof. When God has removed that crushing weight, I'm no longer under the law. Instead, I am absolutely a partner with the law. I am to be obedient to the law. The law is my friend. It is my blessing. It is my guide. It is a lamp unto my feet. Let's look at it this way. The Holy Spirit is like a flowing river of clear, life-giving water. And Jesus Christ said, anyone that has the love of God and the Holy Spirit of God out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That just merely means out of the innermost psyche, out of the innermost attitude and mind and heart of the person will flow wonderful, loving, outgoing deeds. But the river channel along which that flowing water flows is the Ten Commandments. God's Holy Spirit flows in a law-abiding channel, which is the Ten Commandments. He goes on to say then, and this is very, very clear, what shall we sin? What shall we say? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. You've been forgiven the past infractions, now don't commit any future infractions. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. Youngsters oftentimes obey what is in. I used to put it this way, like a cold front coming out of Canada, like a blue norther, and you can do nothing about it, right? What can you do about it? The weatherman says there's a blue norther coming out of Canada. It's going to assail all the prairie states. It's going to dip deep into the south. And the people down all the way to Florida are worried about the oranges and grapefruit. Can you do anything about a cold front out of Canada? No. So I've said in my radio programs for years, when these transvestites and homosexuals decide to design youngsters and women's and men's clothing in the way they do, and most of the designers are queer as $3 bills, they decide for you what you will wear. And it's like a cold front coming out of Canada. There's nothing you can do about it. So suddenly all the shops and the stores in the mall are filled with old rumpled jeans that they've thrown into a washer with about a half a cup of uh, Clorox or something. Look like they've been dragged, you know, through the street. They're all frayed. They actually build in a lot of the rents and the tears and all of that to make them look like they're real old. And the kids will do that. Back when I was in the Navy in 1948, a girlfriend of mine tried to get me to get my ear pierced. Some of the guys in my barracks were wearing earrings. I want you youngsters to know just how up, how modern, and how in it is to pierce your flesh. Well, of course, it started back in ancient Babylon, ancient Egypt. I can show you pictures of ancient Egyptians with rings in their noses and their ears and all parts of their body. So today, and we even had a little waitress at Emerald Bay for a while. It was unbelievable. I think later on I ran across her at a different restaurant. She had taken it out. But she had a steel ball bearing, I guess, on each end in the middle of her tongue. She had pierced her tongue. I don't know how the poor thing could talk or even chew her food 
Can you imagine a more sensitive part of the body than the tongue to bore a hole through it so that you can stick your tongue out and other people, wow, she has got an earring or whatever it is in her tongue. Oh, I'm impressed. And to get that bit of old, torn, thrown away tinsel, what someone else thinks about you, the kids will do that. And that is absolutely pitiful, tragic. People will ruin their bodies and do that. This is the meaning of sin being a, like a taskmaster that we obey. When we give in to others, instead of us setting the styles, we go along with those that are set by other people. Well, then we're the slaves and they are the taskmasters. Why don't we set the styles? You know, any old dead fish can just swim, I mean, can just float downstream. An old dead carp can float downstream. But it takes a very powerful lively fish to swim upstream against the current. Verse 17, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, and what is sin? We're going to read that in a moment. It is the transgression of the law. You became the servants of righteousness. All right, there's only one scripture in the Bible, I've said it a hundred times if I've said it once, where the actual definition of sin is given. This is never going to be read in most pulpits in this country. 1 John 3, 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Now with that definition in mind, with all of these other scriptures in mind, a couple more I want to give you, then I want to go to the place that they get the idea that the law was nailed to the cross. Romans 6, 23 the wages of sin is death. Sin is what? The transgression of the law. What do you earn by transgressing God's law? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now even that bears a lot of explanation in the Protestant world, which I've done for decades. They don't know what life is, and they don't know what death is. I had a young Marine in San Diego one time in 1955 or 6 when I was speaking down there. And I understood that he'd been in the Marines for a time, and I asked him if he knew what death was. Oh yeah, he knew what death was. And I had held this lady, in her head in my hands when the blood was bubbling out of her ear, been crushed in a terrible automobile accident out there at Miramar where I was, and watched this lady die. I'd seen my grandparents die, I'd seen other people die, I'd seen my little puppy die. I talked to him about death. You know what death is? It's the absence of life. The body is beginning to decay. It's going back to the ground from whence it came. Now if the wages of sin is death, is that telling you the wages of sin is eternal life? But just in a different place, in a different condition. No, it's saying it is death. Now, what is death? Well, you can go through all of the Bible scriptures about what is death. And it shows that death is profoundly a, a deep sleep. And David says, as sheep are they laid in the grave. And he said, in the grave there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave no one gives God thanks. And talks about oblivion in the grave. Many, many scriptures in the Bible. So the wages of sin is death, not eternal life. But the gift of God, the opposite of that, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Two complete opposites, but it's not that way in the Catholic Protestant world. There is ever-living life from the time that either you first, I guess because of 
And I don't know the Catholic take on this because the Catholics are against abortion. And in that, the Catholics and I 100% agree. So I don't know when they, if, if they say, like I believe and I know it's true, that the new human life begins at the instant of conception, not necessarily at the moment that the uh, little infant is born and draws its first breath. Some people make that distinction, which is how they get away with what they call partial birth abortion, which is so, so ghastly I don't even want to talk about it. But nevertheless, it does begin at conception. So if we go back to Romans, the seventh chapter, I want to wade through a little bit of this with you. What shall we say then is the law sin? Now that is what I started out asking. And isn't it interesting that even back then the Apostle Paul put it to the Romans that way. Many a pastor in the pulpits of thousands of Protestant churches will make it out to you, make it out to his audiences. They do it on radio, and I've heard them on television, that the law is sin. If God catches you trying to keep his law, you're going to go, as they say, to hell. They say hell instead of hell out there in West Texas. And... They really believe that, and they really propound that theory. They really get, get all anxious and, and upset about it. What should we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I would not known. I would not have known sin, but by the law. Ah, now isn't that simple? Well, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to smoke in this building, except that there was a sign that said no smoking in the building. Ah, well, that's kind of simple. Unless there is a rule, you can't break the rule. So if there's a law, then the law says, thou shalt or thou shalt not, and you understand what it is. I wouldn't have known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Of course not. Because every young human being, from the moment we are little crying babies, covets and lusts, we want we reach out for things that are not ours. We have no concept of that which is ours, that for which we have labored, that which we have earned or paid for, as opposed to that which we want. And so we have to be taught by our parents and later on by our teachers and be told the difference between right and wrong. He said, I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, and he's merely getting a little flowery and poetic there and showing that because of the commandment shining this bright light inside his innermost psyche, he now realizes and sees that many of the things that he thought and said and did were wrong because the law had said they were wrong. But he might not have known that as a natural carnal human being. For without the law, sin was dead. In other words, he didn't even know what sin was. And that is exactly true of 99 point some odd percent of the population of the world. I was alive without the law once, without the knowledge of the law, without the law being a part of his mind. But when the commandment came, that is, came to his attention, came to his knowledge, sin revived because it's like shining a flashlight down in there and showing all the dark corners. And I died because the law claimed his life. But because Christ died in his stead and he believes in that sacrifice, then God forgives him of all of that sin. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth took the penalty on himself. I was alive without the law once, verse 9, but when the commandment came, sin revived, became what it is, became a living thing within him that he detested, and I died. 
And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Difficult language in a way, but he's waxing a little bit eloquent here and esoteric. Wherefore, he concludes, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good, because of what it wrought in his life. It showed him a difference. It pointed out, that's bad, and this is good. That is sin, and this is righteousness. He wouldn't have known without a set of laws or rules or regulations. And he said, when those laws and regulations came to my mind, then I looked down and saw inside myself that I hadn't been obeying them. And so I repented of that, and the penalty, the wage of sin being death, I became as good as dead, but because I underwent baptism, which symbolized my death, and I accepted the death of Christ in my stead, I revived and I am alive. Now, here is the man, the Apostle Paul, who upheld the laws of God continually to the Gentiles. and said the commandment is holy and just and good. Where did all of this, how the law got nailed to the cross, come from then? I want you to turn to Colossians 2, and I'm going to break in the middle of the thought to get to the most salient and important verses. Verse 12, Colossians 2, 12. Buried with him in baptism, because baptism does symbolize a burial, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, talking to Gentiles, has he quickened together with him, that is, enlivened, renewed their lives, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his stauros. And the word cross, by the way, comes from the Latin crux, and the Latin crux has no connection whatsoever to the Greek word stauros, which is an upright pale or a stake. Now, do you know of any scripture in the Bible that says that the Ten Commandments are called a handwriting of ordinances. Are they called the ordinances of God, the ten ordinances, or the handwriting of ordinances? No, there's no such scripture. Are they against us? Are these handwritings of ordinances against us? Well, the handwriting of ordinances that Paul refers to certainly are, but are the Ten Commandments against us? I want you to read, although you don't need to turn to it, Deuteronomy 5, 29. God says, Oh, that there were such an heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Continually, God's people were told, For the law is your righteousness. And if you keep God's law, you will walk the high places of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of my father Jacob. And they were given the land, and they were preserved and protected in that land as long as they observed God's laws. When they didn't, of course, they lost everything. Now, he goes on, Colossians 2.15, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. What does he mean by that? 
principalities and powers. Satan the devil and his evil minions on this earth and evil governments, totalitarian and despotic governments on this earth, and of course men's perverted and twisted society. Let no man, verse 16, therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. And don't you think that there aren't hundreds of sermons that have been preached by lifting these scriptures right out of context They won't read all these other things I told you about in the last 45 minutes or so. They won't read about the law being enforced before Sinai. They won't read about the law being obeyed by the patriarchs. They won't read about what Christ said about the law, or that he said, I have kept my father's commandments, or he said to the young nobleman, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. They won't read any of that. They won't read what Paul said, the commandment is holy and just and good. They'll come straight to these scriptures, pick them out of the Bible, Tell biblical illiterates, people who rarely read the Bible, people who don't study the Bible, people who don't have an exhaustive concordance, people who won't look, up, look it up in a diaglot, people who don't even really realize the Bible wasn't written in English. I received a letter many years ago from a little old lady so irritated with me because one time on a radio program I quoted out of the Moffat translation. And she said, Garner Ted, if that King James Bible was good enough for the apostles, it was good enough for me. And she let me know that she was irked at me having used a different translation of the Bible because she knew the King James Bible was what Paul must have quoted from. Anyway, there are people out there that are like that, that don't know any better. And so they're fair game for some of these ones who will rail and rant against the Ten Commandments of God. Let no man judge you. Oh, well, that's fine because God does say, Matthew 7, 1, judge not, condemn not, that you be not condemned. So that's fine. You shouldn't let a man judge you. Now, does that say, don't let God judge you? Or does it say, let no man judge you? What does it say? In meat. Now, that calls to mind the dietary laws. Or in drink. That calls to mind what many a church says about look not on the wine while it is red or whatever, while it moveth, that is, while it's working, while it's not quite yet fermented, and about all the anti-drinking that there is in some churches. Or in respect of. Now, if you happen to look that up sometimes, it means literally part or taking part. So literally in the Greek, let no man judge you in your eating or drinking, or uh, in respect to an holiday or the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. Well, of course, they're a shadow of things to come. The Sabbath is a shadow of the millennium, of the constant rule of Jesus Christ for 1,000 years. But the body is, the word is, notice in your Bible, Is it in italics? It is in mine. It is in all the King James. It was italicized by the translators, and it doesn't belong there. It is saying, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body of Christ. It's saying this, let no man judge you, but the body of Christ. The body of Christ, meaning the church, the ministry, the body of Christ, determines things such as this. He says... Let no man then beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility 
and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Verse 20, Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, parenthesis, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men? Now let me go back and read that portion without the parenthetical insertion. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances after the commandments and doctrines of men? Subject to ordinances, parenthesis, what kind of ordinances? Those which say, touch not, taste not, handle not. Is there, a t- is there one of the Ten Commandments that says, touch not? Does one say, taste not? Does one say, handle not? Don't handle a bulky mule. Don't don't touch your wife. Don't taste of the vine. But are there these ordinances in other churches? Are there ordinances that have to do with touching, tasting, and handling? You ought to watch a Zen Buddhist sometime in his prayer. He's got his bean bag, and there's a hole in the bean bag in his index finger because he says he used that to pick his nose and his ear, and he calls it his dirty finger. And so there he is with his finger wiggling around, and he's going through his beads with his other fingers because he's not supposed to touch those beads with his dirty finger. Yeah, it's true. So there are ordinances like that. For example, what about celibacy? Touch not. You're not supposed to get into the habit. I'm just kidding. But... That's uh, what they teach in the Catholic Church. So there are all kinds of ordinances of touch not, taste not, handle not, which are to perish with the using. And they are called the commandments and doctrines of men. Now these are taboos. Where in the Word of God, where in the Ten Commandments, do you find God telling you to obey the doctrines and the commandments of men? Nowhere from Genesis to Revelation, nowhere. These are ceremonial nonsense that oftentimes are put upon people in various kinds of religion. You're not to touch your hair. You're to let it grow all the way to the floor. Certain taboos and restrictions, like the Pharisee that said, I fast twice in a week. What about Lent? Not something you find in your navel. Not Lent, it's Lent. And most Protestants don't know what in the world it is, where it came from, or why the Catholics do it. But they've got a partial fast. I knew a guy that said, I give up chewing gum every Lent. Then he goes back to it after Lent. And it doesn't mean the past of loaned. It is the Lenten season leading up to Ishtar, Ashtaroth, or Astarte, which is Easter. And it was artificially imposed by the Roman Catholic Church, a sort of a a self-imposed asceticism or abstinence, and we're coming to that in just a moment. Which things, verse 23, which things, what things, these commandments and doctrines of men, the ordinances of touch not, taste not, handle not, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship? The Greek word's kind of hard to pronounce, but it's ethelotreskia. Athelotreskia. 
E-T-H-E-L-O-T-R-E-S-K-E-I-A, a long Greek word. It means self-imposed worship. Self-imposed worship. So that is, he says, which things indeed have a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. Now there's nothing that more illustrates neglecting of the body than a Catholic priest who is celibate or a nun who is celibate. A show of will worship? This is for ostensible display. This is for some kind of vain show of people who do all these things, wear strange garb, go through a lot of funny things, maybe serve an altar. I remember one guy, a Zen Buddhist, who was being interviewed on television one time, and his whole job, they had this kind of a man-made altar and had a lot of junk on it, some oriental gods and little tablecloth and a lot of gongs and cymbals and candles and bells. And, and his job was to just serve that altar. And he was there all day and he'd polish and dust and he'd place things around. That was his job, just serve that altar. What a wonderful way to live. Which have indeed a show in will worship of humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. I should say not. Now these things, these taboos, these added do's and don'ts, which were certainly a part of the Talmud and certainly rife in the Jewish religion of that time. For example, and I've told you this before because this is the one thing you pick out that is funny, you could not go to the work of killing a flea on the Sabbath, getting that rotten little vermin and get in between the thumbnails because he's pretty hard to kill otherwise and just killing him unless he bit you first. It's too much work if you're watching a flea crawling up your arm to go like this and get him and kill him. That's work and you shouldn't do that according to the Jewish Talmud. But if he bit you, ow, you little devil, then it was a flea in your arm, same as an ox in a ditch. And you could grab the flea and you could kill him only after he bit you. Now you've got the bubonic plague, but you have obeyed the Talmud. And you're a good, righteous Jew, but you've got the bubonic plague. Because the flea came from a squirrel outside and the squirrel carried bubonic plague. And this is true, by the way, in California and different parts of our country, there are ground squirrels that have fleas, and those fleas carry the bubonic plague. So you really don't want to go along with all of these things because as it goes on to say in the Bible, not in any honor of the satisfying of the flesh, I should say not. If you end up dead of bubonic plague, it'd be better to go ahead and break the law in the Talmud and kill the flea before he bites you. So this is what the Apostle Paul is really talking about. Is there any part of that scripture that tells you that you are not to obey the Sabbath, you are not to obey the Ten Commandments of God? But you can see, can't you? If you didn't know what I explained in the first part of this, if you didn't know anything about your Bible, I am adept enough at words, I could take these scriptures, and I could do a very good job of ranting and railing against the Ten Commandments of God, and the Sabbath, and the Holy Days, and show you that they're ordinances of men, that they've been nailed to the cross, that he took it out of his way, nailing it to the cross, and you would go out of this room after I'd finished that ranting and raving sermon, absolutely convinced that you don't ever need to obey God's Ten Commandments or the Sabbath day. 
that all you need to do is believe, love the Lord, go around in a nice, smarmy, sticky, sentimental attitude of niceness and goodness and decency and mercy and faith, and I love the Lord, and that's it. And God looks down, he says, I know that that person loves me, therefore everything is fine. All right, he goes on to say in verse uh, Colossians 2, 18 to 23 now, let no man beguile you of your reward in a, did I read the part about blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us? Yes, I did. Yeah, now, I, I read that too, I think, in uh, verse 18, so I won't go back and read that again. Let me now go to 1 John 2, 1 through 4. 1 John 2, 1 through 4. Let's conclude with some of these other scriptures at the other side of this that have to do with God's law. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. 1 John 2, 1 through 4. If any man sin, notice that John says, if any man, that includes himself. We, we have an advocate. John is including himself. He knows that he's fallible. He knows that even as a patriarch, a patriarchal minister, and an original disciple of Christ, that he's perfectly capable of sinning and making a mistake. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Can a minister sin? Of course, John said so. Can anyone who is begotten of God sin? Fall short. The word sin, by the way, and there are many different usages, means to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark. And so he says, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and that is common parlance in a lot of Protestant churches, how nice it is to know the Lord. Do you know the Lord? He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God. Now here's another Bible definition. What is the love of God? How do you define the love of God? 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Oh, but the world certainly thinks that they are. Absolutely believes that his commandments are grievous. I get a lot of fun out of that on my television program from time to time. I give people a clue, and I say it's somewhere between the, the third and the fifth, if you want to look it up, is the only commandment they really take issue with. Really, I'm sincere about that. The Protestant and Catholic Church takes no issue whatsoever. Well, the Catholic Church has their explanations. They actually explain around uh, the first and second commandment about idols. They say, well, we're not worshiping the St. Christopher. We don't worship the statue there. And it just reminds us of the saint that is up in heaven. We don't worship the thing. The thing merely reminds us in the same way that the written word does and so they get around it that way. But they do bow before them, and they cross themselves, make all kinds of funny signs before them. They think that some of them sweat, and some of them bleed, and some of them talk, and all of that. And uh, every now and then a pope is canonizing. It doesn't mean taking a saint and blowing him out of a cannon. It does mean uh, putting him in the ranks of 
the various so-called saints up in heaven above. That's what they think. His commandments are not grievous. When I listen to them out in West Texas, ranting and railing against the Ten Commandments, it sure sounds like they're grievous. It sounds like the worst thing you could ever be caught alive doing would be to be found trying to keep God's law. You know that people believe that you today, by doing what you're doing, you come here on the Sabbath day, a day of absolute wonderful rest. I'm the only one here that doesn't get to rest today. But that's the lot of the Levite. And so, it is a day where God commands you, six days shalt thou work and labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. And then he goes on to tell us that it's all of our household and our cattle and the stranger within our gate. It's to be a day of complete peace and rest and relaxation, rejuvenation, recreation, it's a day that is holy to God. It's not a day to be feared. It's a day that we ought to cause our children and grandchildren to look forward to with great alacrity and expectancy. And the Feast of Tabernacles, do you really feel like you're under bondage when you go for eight solid days of rejoicing and feasting with God's people? But you know, there are those that say that if God catches you at it, and that's, they don't come out and say it the way I put it. I like to put it that way to kind of yank, you know, kind of twang them a little, kind of yank their ear a little and make them sit up and take notice that if God catches you at trying to keep his law, he's going to send you to hell. And that's basically what they teach. Now, let's read in Revelation, the 12th chapter in verse 17, a description of the church during the tribulation. This is the end time church. Now we're going to the last book of the Bible. This is the little inset chapter, the whole history of the church from its inception in the plan of God when it's pictured as the woman with her feet on the moon and the sun behind her all the way to the end of it at the time of the tribulation. Verse 17, And the dragon, that Satan, was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God Try to get around that. Try to make that sound like it's something else other than the commandments of God. And ask anybody to use any concordance and come up with some other law, some other set of rules, some other something somewhere that does not include the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day. Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony, that's the gospel, the witness, the word of Jesus Christ. So congratulations, you are a part of the church that is striving as it can with the help of Jesus Christ because we can never keep it perfectly and we know we can never earn one thing. We cannot earn one day's grace by keeping the Ten Commandments. What do we earn if we don't? Death. What do we earn if we do? Nothing but continuation of life rejoicing, joy, and knowing that we're not under the condemnation of sin. What do we do if we break the commandments? We've sinned, and we come under the condemnation of death, which is the consequences or the wages of sin. What do you do then? You're a converted Christian. You've sinned. You've done something wrong. You get on your knees, and you pour out your heart to God, and you beg his forgiveness, and you ask Jesus Christ to convey that to the Father, you do it in the name of Christ. He is your high priest. You go to confession. 
but not to a Catholic through a little booth who can't get his hand through it. You go to Jesus Christ, who is your high priest in heaven above, and you confess to him. And when you do that, brokenhearted in sincerity, he hears, he turns to his father, and his father forgives. That's the function of Christ on a day-to-day basis. He is the high priest for all of us. Now, the very last part of the Bible, Revelation 22:14. Look at the way the Bible closes. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So you're very blessed today because here you are keeping God's law. I started out by saying, you know, there are those that believe, aha, I caught you. And they think that God is up there in his heavenly armchair looking around, where can I find someone trying to obey me today. If I find anybody trying to obey me, I'm going to get him. I'll fix him. That's worse than any other sin you can imagine. Cocaine, heroin, adultery, whatever. They're trying to obey me, and I'm going to get them for it. That's the way they preach it. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'll leave you with this thought. Obedience to God removes the pretense from your prayer.